Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine, a Canadian podcast covering our nation's creepier side. My name is Mike Brown, creator and host. With me is my good friend, co-host and geeky spastic sound engineer, Scott Hemingway. Say, mm. say hello, Scott. I like the spastic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, thanks to everybody who listened to our last episode. Uh, we've gotten interesting feedback from folks and they enjoyed some of the changes we've made. We're still learning about podcast production, etc., and, uh, and hopefully we will continue to grow in the right direction. Um, this week, uh, the funeral of Constable John Davidson in uh, Abbotsford uh, was extremely well attended. Some of the other police departments in our region even um, took over policing duties during the funeral. So everybody on the Abbotsford Police Department could attend. It was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, they even had it on TV. So let's get to it. Let's get back to part two. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. As our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes, listener discretion is strongly advised. Put on your toque, grab a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. of 16-year-old Tanya Smith, a near-fatal beating of her best friend Misty Cockrell in Abbotsford, B.C. on October 13, 1995. What made this case stand out was the ensuing four-month-long manhunt during which the killer taunted police. He made multiple phone calls and threw an ominous note through a picture window of an Abbotsford residence, even removing Tanya Smith's grave marker, placing it on the hood of a local radio station's car. As Scott knew the killer's family when he was a youngster, uh, he spent some time at their home. I, I did. I did. Good chunk of time. Uh, we'll elaborate later. Uh, sorry we've teased that so many times, but we want it to be relevant to story points and timelines. But first, a little history about Terry Driver, also known as the Abbotsford Killer. Terry Michael Grant Driver was born in Vancouver, British Columbia on January 27, 1965, to a city police officer and his wife. At two years old, Terry Driver was taken to see a doctor as he was, according to his mother, a bad child. He broke things around the house, had set a fire, and did not seem to respond at all to any form of discipline. Terry's parents were at the end of the rope by the time he turned five years old. Terry was incorrigible. The drivers could no longer handle Terry without help. He was put into a day program for troubled kids. 
that didn't help as they'd hoped. At age six, the drivers gave up custody of Terry to a local foundation. Terry's behavior did not improve under closer clinical observation. He was consistently angry and fought physically with the other children in the care setting. Terry threw things and spat at people regularly. He seemed to be more apt to violence against females and claimed many times he was going to kill his mother. Like, okay, that's interesting that even at that age he was um, talking about killing females and angry. At nine years old, Terry was diagnosed with ADHD. Notes said Terry was high-strung, belligerent, uncooperative, lacking in self-control and without conscience. At his trial for the crimes against Tanya Smith and Misty Cockrell, Terry Driver would later claim that between the ages of 9 and 11, he was sexually molested by two male staff members of the facility he had been placed in. We're not really sure if he's making an excuse here, um, but that's definitely possible. What are your thoughts, Scott? Well, yeah, it's difficult with a psychopath to know what is truth and what is fiction. Yeah, this could have been this it, could have been absolutely true. Ab- yeah, and it but, happens, and it could have been a formative experience for him, or it could be manipulation. That's right. It can be a manipulation trying to get him out of the crimes that he was uh, being charged for. Yep, excuse away his behavior. Yes. After Terry moved home at eleven, uh, the strain on the driver's marriage was too much, and the couple split up. Terry's father, Grant, applied for and received custody of Terry two years later. Between the ages of 13 and 14, Terry came to the attention of police. The first time uh, he had contact with police for his behavior was when he fired his father's pistol, thus sending a round through a neighbor's window. The next time, another neighbor's house was egged and rocks were thrown through a different window. He seemed to have a thing with windows. (laughs) There were no charges laid at the time. But Terry Driver was known to police. He was just getting started. So this is the point in time where we believe that you knew Terry Driver, correct, Scott? Correct. Okay. So how did you know this family? Well, uh, my brother and I attended school with uh, Terry's younger brother, one of his younger brothers or one of his brothers, uh, Richie Driver. Yep. And Richie was... Uh, very, very good friends with my brother. And so most days after school, for that school year, uh, we would go and spend time at the driver household. Wow. So, yeah, we would go over there and just hang out and, you know, play as kids would do. I was about eight. My brother was about 10. Okay. And so you'd like, you've told me you would play hide and seek? Yep. That was uh, something that always stood out because there were... uh, some rooms that always gave me the heebies. Okay, so now that's that's an interesting point. So one of the rooms that gave you the heebies was in the basement, right? Correct. Okay, and, and what was in that one? Well, as one would have, why not a room full of mannequins? Oh. Yep. There was it. Maybe, maybe someone was, I don't know, making... Making clothing? Hey, or? maybe somebody's a tailor in the house. Okay. You know, uh, but it, it, as an eight-year-old, a room full of mannequins will give you the chills. It's not the room you typically would want to, let me hide in this room. Sure. And uh, again, maybe it was only two mannequins and I was eight and 
seemed to me that would be a room full of them. These are the recollections I have yeah. from when I was eight. Yeah, that's a long time. So, yeah, I could uh, not be accurate on everything, but these are my memories. Okay, and you mentioned another room in the house. Yeah, so this one was, uh, I'm going to say, a little more unusual. In what way? In... in, in the way that it was a it, so let me tell you, it was a room off of the living room uh directly off of it yes and uh inside there it was kind of like a uh museum if you shall uh, okay. specifically relating to uh nazis oh yeah uh my recollection mm-hmm. is that uh it was a small room but there was a one of these mannequins. So, yep. hey, you know, practically used for a mannequin now. Uh, in full SS garb. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I remember it quite well. And there was also a lot of other memorabilia. They had one of these old um, glass cases from uh, large stores back in the day that okay. would rotate with like uh, watches and things. W- yeah, that's what it would be used for in stores. But he had um, like medals. I remember there being a Luger on there. All again, from my recollection, all related to uh, uh, Nazis. So they there was a bit of a there was a bit of a um, family interest. Or at least father interest in that in the history of Nazis, and I, I do remember being told by uh, Richie, I believe that uh, if I can remember correctly, he said that their grandfather was uh, in the SS. Oh, and so that's where the family interest comes from. And that could be just a kid saying that, right? Again, yeah, they, a lot of this, uh, I, I'm trying to recall memories yeah. from when I was eight. And they can't be completely reliable. Yeah. But yet, this is what I remember. Sure. Interesting. So, yeah. that you saw those things. And what did you do with Terry Driver? Like, did you have any interaction with him? Not very many. No. No, he often wasn't around from what I can remember. Yeah. I which... do remember there was one time when uh, my brother, myself, Richie, uh, Terry and I believe the father. We we uh, all hung out and watched uh, Fast Times at Ridgemount High. Oh, excellent! Yeah, and uh, Phoebe, Phoebe Cates exactly, mm. and uh, also Halloween Three. Oh, so that's the movie that probably pushed him. Over I think I think that night is what uh, what created everything. Oh god! Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> Interesting. So that's your first connection with the Abbotsford killer. Yeah. So, I mean, it was once he was uh, uh, detained and everything, it was was very surreal to think, oh, man, like I spent time with this, but I knew that household. I knew the family. It was quite a surreal uh, experience. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. Uh, So... You had another connection with him, but that's later on in our yes. timeline, yeah. uh, which is, is even more interesting, actually. I, I, I kind of think I so. I think so, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that. So let's get back to it. Where are we? Terry's a teenager. So at 17, for kicks, Terry started breaking into local homes. He later admitted to a frequency of one B&E a week, so he was pretty prolific. At 18... 
Terry got a job at a local cafe where, unknown to his employer, he began trading food with young street girls for sex. Yeah, we've all done it. Have we? Mm, no. One day, Terry stole $450 from his boss's wallet. He was fired from his job, and a week later, someone with a key snuck in and stole another $550 from the cash register after hours. Of course, Terry was a suspect, but no charges were laid in the burglary and theft. Only days after the break-in, Terry and a pal knocked on the back door of the cafe, hoping to lure his former boss out into the secluded back lane behind the shop. The owner of the cafe suspected something was fishy. He and a friend went out the front door and circled around the dumpster of the building, finding Terry Driver hunkered down behind a dumpster with a heavy metal pole watching the rear door of the cafe, presumably waiting to assault the unsuspecting business owner. After a brief struggle, the owner and his friend managed to get the pole away from Terry, who had come to see about the money, whatever that meant. Terry scurried away when the restaurant owner threatened to call the cops. Terry was eventually arrested and charged regarding this incident, but all charges were later dropped for a lack of evidence. <laughs> Seems like an awful lot of evidence to me. Yeah, anyway. Terry admitted that he often shoplifted from local businesses, residences, and vehicles. He was becoming an avid angler, so if someone left a fishing rod in an unlocked car, it was his. He was a one-man, small-time crime spree. Terry was arrested once after being caught running from an unsuccessful home invasion. Although he was charged again, for some reason, the charges against him were stayed. According to the Supreme Court of Canada, stay in proceedings means charges that are stayed may never be prosecuted. An alleged victim will never get his or her day in court. Society will never have the matter resolved by a trier of fact. It seems like Terry Driver had friends in the right places. Now, his father is a police officer, but... I don't want to imply that Terry Driver's dad was was driving uh, him getting away with things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean it. It is very coincidental, though. Yeah, like that. That is. It's. It's. You can't turn a blind eye to that fact. Right. But there's no uh, evidence. Evidence that says otherwise. Right. So there's no evidence that Terry Driver's dad had anything to do with Terry getting off of these charges. But it could have been people saying, "Well, this is a a police officer's son," and he was a he was a hero cop, from what I right. remember, you know. And so yeah. they they've you know, if the force is thinking that he's a great guy and he may be, uh, that could sway their um, sure and decision making. And, and uh, prosecutors are involved by this point where it comes to a stay in proceedings. So maybe the prosecutors had uh, a high opinion of. Mr. Driver and, yeah. and and as a result, Terry walks free. Yeah. Interesting. Terry's criminal activities helped him pay for a steady stream of prostitutes even after he murdered Tanya Smith and beat Misty Cockrell. His one and only conviction was for engaging in prostitution, ironically. Terry was given a conditional discharge with six months of probation. Terry wanted to be a cop, just like his father. He'd even applied twice to be a police officer, but this was not in the cards, clearly. Instead, Terry went to work for a local printing company. 
with the money that he earned at the printing company, um, he bought a mobile scanner because he was obsessed with police and police work. Scanner chasing is what Terry called his habit of listening for interesting police events around the community and attending for a thrill. Terry Driver got married and fathered two children. His wife, who he was still with when he was ultimately arrested, claimed she had no idea what he was up to. Perhaps she knew, but didn't want to know. So uh, I watched a documentary about her talking about feeling betrayed by Terry Driver, and I didn't get the sense that she actually did know. No, I feel the same way. Maybe she had some uneasiness about him constantly being absent and whatnot, but I don't think she was thinking, oh, I bet you he's out killing. No, I mean, she might have thought he was out messing around on her or something like that or... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I I didn't get the sense that she uh, knew what he was actually up to. He did beat her up. I mean, so he had a a history of violence. He had been violent with her and with his children. So, you know, but if you're you're someone's spouse, you don't... You you would sense something was wrong? Yeah, but you wouldn't be thinking... Uh, yeah, you killer. don't want to go to that worst case scenario. No. After Terry Driver's arrest for the crimes against Tanya and Misty, evidence against him mounted. It was not looking good for Terry Driver and his freedom. He was set to go to trial in the fall of 1996. So <laughs> here's where things get interesting for Scott. <laughs> so Scott uh, had another contact in a way, with Terry Driver, or at least with the legal system in regard to Terry's trial. Yeah. So, Scott, what were you doing in in the fall of 1996? Well, I was uh, working graveyard shift at a recycling plant. Oh, interesting. And so I'm wondering how working graveyards at a recycling plant would figure into this story. Seems pretty clear cut to me. Okay. No, it doesn't. Oh, okay. Well, uh, so the story is that uh, the job was fairly basic and uh, and exhausting because being a midnight uh, graveyard shift. And so what would happen is I'm on an elevated platform, uh, recycling gets dumped onto a conveyor belt. There's about you know, eight of us or so up there were all to sort different products. All rocket scientists. Yeah. Oh, it took a lot of skill. And um, you had to pick up paper. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, at one point through that graveyard shift, uh, somebody picks up a stack of papers, had to mugshot on it. And somebody's like, ha look at this. And my buddy... Aaron is like, hey, let me see that. And so he grabs it and he's like, oh, look, it's it's a monk shot of Scott. Ha ha, look at Scott. And I, I'm i like, I'm confused. And so I'm like, what are you talking about? And I grab the document off him. And immediately it stands out that it's uh, a police file. Okay. And it was Terry Driver's police file, about six pages. Was it a copy of his police file? No, it was the actual... Uh, police file. Okay. And it's pretty concerning. It had very, very uh, confidential information on it. Yes. Uh, Big ban on publication stamp across it. So we won't talk about what you saw in the document exactly. Yeah, but there were identifying... Anything uh, anything that's known we can can mention. Yeah, yeah. But so 
being vague about it, it contained some uh, family information. It you know had a psychological assessment to it. A lot of info on it that wasn't public, right? And, and could jeopardize the trial if made public. So that's that's concerning to just kind of see you know passing by you. Yeah. So Terry Driver had not been convicted at this point. Nope. Nope. Arrested and in pretrial. Yeah. So here's all this information. That nobody is supposed to have, but you have it in your dirty little mitts. That could impact the trial. Oh, wow. Because it's got information on it that wasn't released. And so if it gets out there, that could taint the... Uh, the prosecution's case. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So what did you do well, with that? It, we were pretty concerned about, you know, how this just got out there. Yep. And so... You know, my my buddy Aaron and I thought that we should try to bring this uh, to the attention of uh, uh, the powers that be. Yep. And so we uh, thought about it uh, and, and talked about what the best course of action would be. And we brought it to the media, knowing that there's a ban on publication, that they can't actually put it out there. Yeah. But hopefully some attention would be brought to how this could end up getting out there because it could have at any point from being, re, you know, put into a recycling pile to uh, to where we got it, 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 it could have got out, you know, like a, yeah. maybe a janitor sees it and picks it up from there. Maybe yeah. uh, maybe it falls out at some point like and that could really, really, really. Luckily, the infant, uh, the Internet was in its infancy at yeah, the time. So yeah. uh, because if that was the case. Um, oh, it could have just it could have. Yeah, like I said, it could have uh, played a role in getting him off. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you did contact the news at one point? Yes, we did. And okay. um, one outlet was very eager to uh, do a story on it. How they, did that go? It, it went well. They sent a, a reporter over and uh, – uh, I wasn't at my finest, being I just got off shift at a smelly recycling plant. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, so, yeah, the story was done. Yep, um, they weren't over for too too long, and uh, then they thank us and uh, go back to edit and and produce the story. Like we're going to edit this. Yes, <laughs> and uh, so they. Um, we didn't know what was going to be made of it or anything. And so yep. we're just kind of tuning in throughout yep. the day, kind of, oh, let's see if it, uh, you know, when they were doing commercials uh, today on the news, Terry Driver's file gets released. And we're like, oh, this is, ooh, they're talking about it wow. already. Yeah. And uh, it was the top story. Oh, great. It was the top story for a couple of days. The attorney general was involved. How did you feel about that? Terrified. <laughs> Terrified. Terrified. I, you oh know, my God. I, yeah, I wasn't. I can't even imagine. I wasn't expecting to become part of the story. Yeah. And although we had asked for permission from our boss yep. to do this, um, it didn't go over well. Yeah. And understandably so. It's, I mean, it's a recycling plant. Like they don't have like a, a, a privacy agreements with people or anything like that. It's just like, here's some garbage. At the time, yeah. yeah, there was nothing on paper about yeah. you can't take these things or you can't uh, yeah. do anything with them. And so, uh, yeah, it became a top story. Uh, it impacted the business because clients yep. potentially 
uh, might want to end their contract because understandably they have fear of, oh, if we accidentally put the wrong thing in recycling, is it going to end up on the news? Yeah. So I had to live with the thought of, oh man, like these are, there's some wonderful people who work here, you know, supporting families and stuff. And they might, they might lose their employment because of this, which wasn't the intent at all. So how did all this end? What ultimately happened? Uh, Well, with a lot of fear, I learned a lot about responsibility because there was also uh, Terry's lawyer was wanting to get a hold of me. Of course. And so having to live with the thought of, oh man, me trying to bring attention to this could get this killer out. Yeah. Was just terrifying. So I, I learned a lot about responsibility. I learned a lot about even though sometimes you you're trying to do good, uh, you you need to think things through a little more clear. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah, that's exactly. It. And so it was it was a terrifying experience mm-hmm. in, in every level. Thinking that you might help get a killer out unintentionally, uh, people may lose their jobs. Yeah, uh, my anxiety was through the roof. So you've had the document framed and now hangs on your front door? No, I just, I, I took photos of it and put it all over Facebook. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it, it's it, it's gone. The document, we destroyed it right away. Yeah. Just, abs- you know, uh, we didn't want to risk it getting out. Sure. We knew the news couldn't publish the document. Because yeah. it said not to. Yeah. Uh, so we destroyed it because we certainly didn't want that. To. Yeah. I mean, so interesting. Interesting. So I'm wondering if you guys maybe had a had a hand in creating the secure document uh, <laughs> recycling business. It, that's exactly. So what ended up uh, the conclusion of what happened after the attorney general's uh, investigation was while transporting Terry from Surrey pre-trial to another location, yep. uh, the documents understandably have to be printed to follow along with him. There you go. And I guess once he got to the destination, yep. it uh, that, you know, you throw the paper out, you so throw it in the it, recycling. And But there were policies in place yeah. where that's not supposed to be what happened. It's supposed to be shredded. It's a or stored and then shredded, and that never happened. Okay, and so they had to create a new process for so it was Terry Driver's transport documents between yes. prisons. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was just a bizarre experience to be like I had already known this individual, grew mm-hmm. up spending time in his house, yep. and then many, many, many years later in life, here's another <laughs> just random uh, occurrence that places me back into his life in some capacity. That's crazy. Yeah, it was just very surreal. Wow. Well, let's get to his trial then. Yeah. Shall we? The the one that I did not jeopardize. Thank goodness. Yeah. Terry Driver chose trial by judge. In this case, it was Justice Wally Opal, who, interestingly enough, I just about <laughs> got run over by as he was looking <laughs> at his phone or something uh, when we were walking downtown. We almost came together and collided. Um, he had been on the news so much for different cases and those kind of things, I immediately recognized him. It was kind of weird. And that wasn't when we were doing this. This is It's not that recent. It's like a few months ago. But anyway, it's just a weird thing with Wally yeah. Opal. After opening remarks, the prosecution called Misty Cockrell to testify. Finally, almost two years after she was attacked, she got to take the stand. Misty was confident and concise with her testimony. She faced her attacker directly and met his gaze head on, looking him in the face. 
as she related the horrific tale of what she and Tanya Smith had endured at the hands of Terry Driver. Wow. Misty maintained her composure during cross-examination. When she was questioned about the differences between Terry Driver's face and that of the face in the composite, Misty stated that there was something in her attacker's eyes that she would never forget, and those eyes belonged to Terry Driver, the man in the courtroom. He's the man who had attacked her. After Misty was through relating her harrowing tale, forensic pathologist Dr. Sheila Carlisle took the stand. She had the grim task of relating the results of Tanya Smith's autopsy. She told of life-threatening major blunt instrument trauma to Tanya's skull. A dental bite impression of Terry's matched the bite mark on Tanya Smith's breast. Terry Driver's saliva and semen were present on Tanya Smith's body. As well, material matching that found in Terry Driver's trunk was found on Tanya's eyebrow. Yeah, a lot of evidence coming together there. Oh, yeah. It's, it sounds pretty damning. Yeah. Dr. Carlisle said the cause of death was drowning. Tanya had been alive when she was placed into the Vetter River. The court heard hours of testimony about DNA, fiber evidence from Terry Driver's trunk, the story of Tanya Smith's stolen headstone, and the note thrown through the window of a local residence. That note happened to have a clear fingerprint on scotch tape holding the note to the wrench. It was Terry Driver's fingerprint. I don't know. Like, some, sometimes I think this guy wanted to be caught. Uh, I don't personally think he wanted to. I think he was just uh, so confident uh, that he's smarter than the police, he's smarter than everybody, that he got reckless. Yeah. Well, the police, I, in the book that I read, uh, the police alluded to the thought that perhaps that fingerprint was put there on purpose, that he had put that on pur- on purpose there to taunt the cops because he knew they didn't have his prints on file. Yeah, uh, who am I to uh, go against the beliefs of the officers yeah. but i my my uh instinct is to uh, uh think that he did not want to be caught yeah he just he he was enjoying the control and power and got sloppy with overconfidence there you go well the investigators had done their homework uh particularly really dramatic was the introduction of the phone calls uh taunting authorities Terry Driver's own voice told the court. I'm the one giving you the chance to try and find me. I'll be cruising around looking for someone else. Quote, I'm the one giving you a chance to try and find me. I'll be cruising around looking for someone else. That's chilling. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the, uh, when that was Ugh. released and just the, the fear at the uh, Oh, my God. Set. Yeah. When the prosecution finished, Terry Driver's defense team went to work. They began by blaming some of his behavior on an intense relationship with his parents, specifically his father, who Terry claimed yelled at him a lot and hit him a few times for the bad habits that I used to do, quote. What? Like, I, okay. I I got yelled at as a kid. Yeah, uh, I never did. No? No, no. Not I once? Was, I was a saint. Oh, I'm sure that you are also not a truthful person at this time. You shut your face. First up, this is important. First up, 
Terry Driver took the stand as the first witness in his own defense. Oh, this sounds wise. Yeah, I mean, if correct me if I'm wrong, uh, don't uh, most defense attorneys uh, typically not want their defendant to testify? Yes. So, like, but in this one, it's no. Let's put him up first. Yeah, maybe maybe the hope was that they that the judge uh, would see uh, how crazy Terry was, or maybe it, maybe it's like okay, well, maybe the judge will believe Terry's version of the events. Poor decision making. <laughs> I don't think it was good. No. So Terry's version of the events on October thirteenth, nineteen ninety five, were a little different than what the prosecution was putting forward as fact. Uh, Terry claimed uh, that he was out scanner chasing that night. Earlier, he had spoken to police after reporting a man on a, quote, stolen bicycle. He claimed that after leaving the cop, uh, he went out looking for the guy. Okay. He noticed a man in dark clothing come through the bushes near the back of the hospital and sprint across the road in front of him. Terry pulled over and went through the hedgerow where he said he'd seen the man appear. Here's where it gets interesting. Mm. He says he saw Misty and Tanya lying unconscious on the grass. Misty Cockrell was curled up in a fetal position, fully dressed. Tanya was naked and spread eagle. He left briefly to go to a convenience store to call the police, but on his way, he realized he didn't have a good alibi. However... As he was driving away, he became possessed with the unshakable idea of returning and having sex with the unconscious girl. He did just that. By his own admission. Right. If we were to believe him at his own. But, the, but I guess it's like the evidence is, is, so, is so damning in this regard. Like there's so much evidence against him. Like you can't say... He couldn't have logically put it together to say, I, I wasn't there because there's a lot of DNA evidence, including a bite mark and his, his sperm. So, for sure. So he had to have a defense that uh, would place him there, right. um, that evidence there, but even, him even not the him, killer. Yeah. So, okay. So. But it, even, that's what I'm saying. Like if you take him at his word, if we were to believe what he's saying, it's, that is – his own admission is he's a deplorable human being. Right. But, I mean, he makes excuses for that later. We'll yeah. see. So this next bit is grim. Again, listener discretion is advised. Terry Driver claimed that he only bit Tanya's breast after being startled as Tanya convulsed when he was having sex with her. He believed that this was when Tanya had stopped breathing. As he had already completed the sexual act, he was fearful of his semen being found on a dead girl's body. He put Tanya Smith and the bat he claimed he'd found into the trunk of his car. It wasn't his bat. He said he placed Misty Cockrell into the passenger seat of his car and drove her to the front of MSA Hospital where he hoped she would be found later. Misty earlier had stated in her testimony that no one had helped her to the hospital, that she had stumbled there on her own, so obviously countering Terry Driver's claims. He took Tanya Smith out toward Chilliwack and put her in the Vetter River, face down. He knew this area well as he was an avid fisherman. He threw Tanya Smith's clothes in the bushes where they were found by investigators later that morning. After dumping Tanya on his drive down the number three road toward home, 
he tossed the baseball bat out of his car. I guess I didn't need it anymore. Terry then testified that he had gone home and listened to his scanner with his children. After his wife left for work, he put the kids in the car and drove back out to the Vetter River where he found investigators hard at work. I wonder what they were doing. That just, that whole like the portion whole makes me feel so uncomfortable. Like, sick. Like, okay. But you know why he puts the kids in the car. Why do you think he did that? Oh, well, because nobody would su- suspect a father and his kids of murder. Yeah. They're just going out fishing. Yeah. Right. Terry said that his phone calls were to help, not to taunt. After the first news on the radio asking for witnesses, he wanted people to know that he had tried to help Misty Cockrell. Of course, we've already mentioned that she claimed otherwise. He called, but he freaked out when he was asked to identify himself. His second call was to help the cops find the crime scene. He felt he had to admit biting Tanya to be taken seriously. The problem with testifying in your own defense is that at some point, the prosecution is going to get a chance to cross-examine you. (laughs) They did. (laughs) The prosecution went after Terry hard and homed in on what he had said in his phone calls, what he had written on the note that was thrown through the window, and uh, what he had written on Tanya Smith's own headstone. Terry did not have good answers about his motives for these things, He said he wasn't sure why he had said and wrote the horrible things that he did. Okay, we had answers for everything else. Regarding Terry's recent diagnosis of Tourette's syndrome, the prosecutor asked whether it had affected his ability to be employed over the years. Terry stated that he hadn't had any problem with it and that he hadn't learned anything about it until he was in Surrey pretrial. So it's a very, very convenient diagnosis of Tourette's syndrome. Oh, look, I have this syndrome that will make me do things compulsively. So convenient. Convenient. Not that, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Blah, blah, blah. Edit that out. No. Okay. (laughs) Terry Driver's testimony contradicted the evidence. His testimony hurt him more than helped him. After Terry Driver finished his testimony, his mother took the stand, saying he was unmanageable by the age of five and required to be placed in an institution. A reminder here, Terry Driver's mother and one of her sons, Don, were the ones who flagged Terry to police originally, after recognizing his voice on the damning audio recordings. I say damning too much. Damn. Damn. Once Terry's mother finished, the defense followed up with three medical professionals who would testify about Terry's mental diagnoses. Dr. Mort Dorn, who suffered from Tourette's syndrome himself, testified that Terry lacked the ability to delay gratification, had to continually seek stimulation to the point where he became addicted to turmoil. Dr. Roy O'Shaughnessy agreed with Dr. Dorn's findings. Of course, you're testifying for the defense. They wouldn't call you if you didn't agree. And said that Terry had a multiple diagnosis of Tourette's syndrome, ADHD, and OCD. He would have had a tough time learning how to act socially, leaving him with overpowering sexual impulses that would be hard to control. Dr. O'Shaughnessy also testified that Terry admitted at times... He would have to leave normal activities to find a bathroom where he could masturbate to relieve pressure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Terry denied having any rape fantasies, but admitted he thought about sex with girls who were passed out drunk. So rape. Yeah. 
Dr. Robert Lee was the last to testify. He testified that Terry had an average IQ of 97. Dr. Lee stated that Terry felt he'd been rejected by the people who he cared for most, his parents. As well, he developed a love-hate relationship with the police and authority. Having desired a career in police work and being rejected twice, Terry felt slighted. In fact, he felt superior to the cops as he watched them trying to find him. Dr. Lee also testified that as Terry was afflicted with OCD, ADHD, and Tourette's syndrome, he had a combination of compulsiveness and impulsiveness, making it nearly impossible for him to resist his urges. We hope not to malign anybody who suffers from these disorders mentioned in this killer's defense. There are many people who have these and don't come close to murdering or even hurting someone. The trial ended after 19 days. On October 16, 1997, two years and three days after the crimes that shook Abbotsford and the rest of B.C., Justice Wally Opal came down with his verdict that Terry Driver was guilty on count one, the rape and murder of Tanya Smith. And he was also satisfied the driver was guilty on count two as well, the attempted murder of Misty Cockrell. Opal said to Driver, I simply cannot find the words to describe and depict your horrible crimes. It seems to me you jeopardized the safety and security of the whole town. You attacked two women who were enjoying life. They were on their way to a birthday party. What could be safer than that? They did nothing to you. You murdered Tanya Smith for your own sexual gratification. I cannot understand the motivation for these vicious and senseless acts on these two innocent people. There is simply no excuse for what you have done. Passion in his voice. Yeah, I love it. Opal continued, I watched you during your testimony, and I saw not one degree of remorse. You weren't content just to murder a person, if I can put it that way. You taunted police, and in an ultimate act of insensitivity to the family, you stole the gravestone. Like dirt ball. Yeah. Justice Opal said of Terry Driver's testimony, I must say that the accused was not a satisfactory witness. <laughs> yeah. There were significant inconsistencies in both his conduct and his testimony. Judge Opal sentenced Terry Driver to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years for the murder of Tanya Smith. He was sentenced to 10 years to be served concurrently for the attempted murder of Misty Cockrell. Later, Terry Driver was convicted of the three sexual assaults he had admitted to in the note that he'd thrown through the window. Ultimately, Crown Prosecutors, the equivalent of the DA in Canada, successfully petitioned for Terry Driver to be designated a dangerous offender. From a Government of Canada website on public safety, the dangerous offender provisions of the Criminal Code are intended to protect all Canadians from the most dangerous, violent, and sexual predators in the country. Individuals convicted of these offenses can be designated as a dangerous offender during sentencing if a court is satisfied that the offender constitutes a threat to life, safety, or physical or mental well-being of the public. Where an offender is designated by the court as a dangerous offender, the offender may be sentenced to an indeterminate sentence of imprisonment. This means if a person's convicted uh, as a dangerous offender, probably not getting out of jail. Yay, Canada. Yeah. Uh, A lot of other countries have this kind of provision. Uh, Ours came about 
uh, due to some interesting individuals, uh, one named Paul Bernardo, Eesh. who we've mentioned before, who we will do a podcast about, and another one who is very local. He actually uh, murdered 11 children, some of whom who he took from this very neighborhood. Yep. Uh, his name was Clifford Olson, a man who scored 38 out of 40 on the psychopath test. Jeez. Yeah, so nice guy. So there you go. Terry Driver is one of those kind of people. Great. And Scott got to spend some time with him watching <laughs> movies. In 2002, in a controversial decision, in an effort to maintain some credibility, the city of Abbotsford paid $10,000 uh, as a reward to Terry Driver's mother and his brother for turning him in. As his family claimed they believed Terry's version of events, this did not sit well with people. Yeah, understandably, it doesn't sit well with me. What about Misty Cockrell? What about her? Yeah, wow. Uh, Misty, a mother of two as of 2014, went on to receive a Bachelor of Arts focused in sociology from the University of the Fraser Valley. She has worked as an outreach worker for victims of serious crime with a local outreach society called LINC, L-I-N-C. Her LinkedIn profile states she is a special educator assistant and regarding her public speaking, she says, I do my presentations about the effects of trauma on victims of violent crimes. I compare my information to personal stories so that the public can relate better and learn how to work with victims on their healing journey with minimal revictimization. Misty's courage to overcome what happened to her is inspirational to me, at least. Yeah, me as well. In a CBC interview from 2009, Misty Cockrell said, I don't play the victim or anything like that. I've accomplished quite a bit since, so that's not really a label for me. She also said, you can get by. You can overcome it, and you don't have to be a victim forever. And finally, I'd be happier with being called an advocate of victims' rights. That would be a better label than the survivor of the Abbotsford killer. Fair enough. Yeah, what, a, what an amazing person. Yep. So, research for this episode and the previous episode came from former Abbotsford police officer Rod Gell's book, Through the Valley of the Shadow, a Search for the Abbotsford Killer. You can read a lot of Terry Driver's court testimony there, and there's lots more about the investigation and the crime. As well, Stanley Semrau's book, Murderous Minds on Trial, Terrible Tales from a Forensic Psychiatrist's Casebook, was especially helpful in helping me to understand the psychological aspects of this disturbing case. Thank you to both of these authors. You can pick both of these up in different formats on Amazon. So that's it for our conversation about the Abbotsford Killer. Finally, you've got that off your chest, Scott. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be... Uh, I know you've been chomping to talk about it for a while, so... Yeah, it's just something that's so prominent in my... In my head, just it's, you know, you can't script those kind of coincidences. Yeah. You know, those kind of random yeah. uh, occurrences. And, and who knows, like, who else we've had contact with over the years, you know? That's a good point. Yeah. So uh, next time uh, we're thinking that we should be doing a podcast about the Halifax explosion. It's almost the 100-year anniversary of that. So uh, I, I'm excited about that one. It's something that's always uh, fascinated me. And lots of people don't know about it, obviously. Yeah. There's, there's no one left, I don't think, who remembers it yep. uh, being 100 years. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this and other episodes of Dark Poutine, 
check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com. If you have any story ideas, questions, comments, or just want to say hi, you can reach us via email at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and tell your friends about us, and tweet at us, and Facebook us, and do all those things. All of them. Because I like, I like that. I like to interact with folks. Yeah. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory. And if you're so inclined, it would be awesome if you left a five-star review and comments on iTunes. Because that helps. Be so inclined. Be so inclined. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.